Today we have a special guest to introduce the podcast. Special guest, can you tell everybody your name? Reagan Miss Murphy. And Reagan, what is today's podcast about? Christmas. Christmas? And who uh, that's a Christmas person is this podcast about? Me. No, it's not about you. Who is it about? Jesus. Well, yes, it is about Jesus, but who else? And what are we going to learn today about Santa? He's real! That's right. Thank you, Reagan. That's right. And thank you, Reagan, for the introduction. In today's podcast, we're going to tackle the history of Christmas, in particular, the history of Santa Claus. And as Reagan just helpfully told us, Santa Claus was a real person. More to the point, we'll be busting some other myths about Christmas as well, like the myth that you can take Christ out of Christmas. Ultimately, Christmas is one of the most important days of the year. For Christians, probably the second most important day. We'll explain why in this podcast. And it certainly commemorates the person who I would say is the most consequential figure in history, whether you believe in his divinity or not, Jesus Christ. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to this festive episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. By the time you are hearing this, it will be appropriate for me to say Merry Christmas. When I'm recording it, it would not be appropriate because, in fact, one of the myths that we're going to bust about Christmas today is that Christmas starts on Black Friday because, in fact, Christmas starts on Christmas Day and goes for 12 days afterwards. The 12 days of Christmas begin with December 25th. I'm recording this on December 22nd. That is the day before Christmas Eve Eve or Festivus. If you're a Seinfeld fan, then you have Christmas Eve, then you have Christmas. Before we get into the Christmas goodness, I want to say that you can rate and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. If your podcast provider has a ratings option, please do that and give us a five-star rating. If we get a lot of five-star ratings for this episode, there will probably be more attempts to shamelessly work in plugs for my adorable four-year-old. If not, there probably won't be. And in terms of how could you be so cruel and exploitative to your four-year-old and put her on a politics podcast, my only response is, number one, it's Christmas. And number two, if I won't go for the low-hanging fruit, somebody else will. So you can rate and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast provider. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government, and once again, views expressed here do not represent those of Regent University or of the Robertson School of Government, although I do believe I can speak for all when I say, if you are hearing this after December 25th, Merry Christmas. So, this being a Christmas episode, we are, in fact, going to talk about Christmassy things, but we are not going to shy away from controversy. and. If you think that the takes on this podcast about Trump or about politics or about Democrats or Republicans or even pizza have been controversial, you have not heard some of my Christmas takes, my, my opinions about Christmas. And the one that I'm going to start with is, in fact, the one that my daughter previewed, which is that Santa Claus is real. Now, most of you, if you're like me, probably remember your parents telling you something to the contrary when you were some age between eight and 12. And they sort of spoil the surprise and say that, no, they don't know this. This gift-giving elf-like figure is not real. And in fact, your parents are wrong. There is a real historical Santa Claus. 
I think part of the reason why Santa sometimes gets a bad rap among Christians, rap pun intended, is that we have associated him with, in some sense, the commercialization of a holiday uh, that really should be about the birth of Jesus Christ. And so Christians get very upset and talk about the war on Christmas. I'm hoping today that I can change your mind not only about Santa Claus, but about the whole project of taking the Christ out of Christmas, which is impossible, by the way. And also, in so doing, say something about the relationship between Christianity and the modern world. There are a couple of books that I'm going to recommend right here at the outset that are going to be really important for some of the stuff that we're going to talk about. The first is a book by Adam English called The Saint Who Would Be Santa Claus. If you've ever been interested in the historical roots of the current modern phenomenon known as Santa, this book is an absolute must read because it is, to my knowledge, one of the best biographies written of the dude who actually was Santa, Nicholas Bishop of Myra, who lived around the 300-ish mark and who really lived through and experienced and was a remarkable figure, albeit sort of a minor player in, some of the most dramatic changes in Christianity and the history of Christianity. In Nicholas's life, he suffered both the most severe persecution that Christians ever experienced under Diocletian. And in fact, he was tortured for his faith, right? So we have this idea of you know, Santa Claus as a as a guy who represents all the happy, warm, fuzzy stuff. But he is based on a figure who actually suffered during the persecution of Diocletian, at that point, the worst persecution of Christianity in history. And he was tortured for his faith. And then he turned around and became one of the important figures at the Council of Nicaea. This was a formative council in, in Christianity in determining their doctrine of the Trinity. A lot of legends have come up about St. Nicholas. And uh, blind politics cannot confirm or deny the authenticity of all of these legends. However, I would like to point out that if you thought Santa was boring, and if you thought Santa was a sort of nice, cuddly figure, well, the naughty and nice list that Nicholas of Myra kept included heretics as well. The controversy at the Council of Nicaea was a controversy about the nature of the Trinity and whether Jesus was fully God or fully man. So this is a really important thing when we're talking about Christmas, the guy whose birth we're celebrating. Is he, in fact, the Son of God, who is God from God, true God of true God, begotten, not made? Or is he something else? Arius was a theologian from Alexandria, and he said, really, if you're going to argue for the sort of eternal authority of the Father, you have to sort of argue that Jesus was subordinate, and Jesus was so subordinate that he was not, in fact, divine. He was a created being, and he has a beginning. Arius's kind of you know, phrases before him there was. This becomes really problematic for the early Christian understanding of salvation because the purpose of salvation at that point is to sort of unite people to Christ, right? The understanding is that we are participating in the divine relationship, the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This idea is really still there in Christianity today. We don't emphasize it as much, but it's very heavily emphasized at the time. Well, if Jesus is not fully God, then joining with him, being in him, in Christ, as Paul says, pretty much all across the, God, the, the letters of Paul, is not a true participation in Christ, in, in God, right? So you're not truly united with God if Christ is not truly God. And if Christ is not also truly man, then he can't unite us to God because he's not like us, right? So there's this kind of economy of salvation that this issue over a very technical question of the Trinity becomes really important. How does this relate to St. Nicholas? 
We know that St. Nicholas was on the orthodox side of this. He was on the side that won at the Council of Nicaea that affirmed that Christ is fully God and fully man. But there are a couple of legends that speak to the character of Santa Claus, one of which is almost certainly true, the other of which might not be true, but is awesome nonetheless. The one that's almost certainly true is that Nicholas played an important role in reconciling some of the Arian uh, bishops to the Nicene Creed. He emphasized the importance of church unity and not letting their private opinions about the council be more important than keeping the church united. And so on that basis, he was able to reconcile with gentle, loving persuasion some of the heretical bishops, the bishops who did not want to affirm the full humanity and full divinity of Christ, to the formulations of the Nicene Council. The awesome legend that probably isn't true, but should be because Jesus or because Santa Claus has both a naughty and a nice list, is that he got so upset with Arius the guy who was preaching this nonsense about the Trinity from Nicholas's perspective and from the Orthodox perspective, that he slapped Arius in the face. That's right. Santa Claus punched a heretic in the face. That is the legend. Is this legend true? Is it not true? Well, nobody kept notes on the Council of Nicaea in quite the same way that James Madison did on the Constitution. It's very difficult to figure out how many bishops were even there, although the most reliable account is that, in fact, Nicholas probably was there and that there were probably somewhere north of 200, maybe almost 300 bishops there. But did Nicholas get so exercised by this Arian heresy that he punched the arch-heretic in the face? We may never know, but it does remind everybody that he knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake, does come with a little bit of punch, pun intended. So how did this guy become Santa Claus? Well, it all happens because of something that he does before he's even a bishop when Nicholas was just a young man who inherited a lot of money from his parents. There were three girls living in the town whose daughter had, or whose father had fallen onto hard times. And this father was going to sell his daughters into prostitution. That was how desperate his financial status was. Imagine being a father at the time, and Roman fathers had the absolute authority of life and death over their children, and having so little respect for your daughters that you would sell them into prostitution. That is an absolutely unfathomable thing from a modern perspective. But it happened in the Roman Empire, pre-Christianity, of course, all the time. But the story goes that Nicholas heard about this. And when it was quiet at night, walked up to the man's house and threw a bag of gold through the window. This bag of gold had enough money for a dowry for the man's first daughter. He then threw a second and a third bag of gold in through the window. Nicholas was very pro-marriage, and not only was he pro-marriage and, and sort of uh, having respect for the dignity of these women, such that he actually provided a dowry sufficient that their father could, could get them married, but he was extremely generous. And doing this before he was even a bishop, that's, that's the story in all of the lives of St. Nicholas that we have, demonstrates an important aspect of who St. Nicholas was that is very much related to what you'd expect from a good bishop, which is providing for the poor. Bishops weren't just dudes who walked around and punched heretics in the face in late antiquity. They were also the social safety net, the welfare system, and the only one in the ancient world that was anything close to universal. If you were not a Christian and you were in the pagan Roman world, anything you got depended on a patronage relationship. And if you didn't have a patron or if something happened to your patron, you were out of luck. But the bishops had a different understanding. Christian bishops understood themselves as representatives of Christ, who was the universal patron to all of the poor. And so bishops 
provided for the poor, the vulnerable, the marginalized, those who did not have patrons in Roman society. Nicholas wasn't even a bishop at this point. He was just a really well-catechized lay Christian who'd inherited a bunch of money from his wealthy parents. And he took that money and used it to do the things that later he would do as a bishop when he was Bishop of Myra. Now, there are a number of other stories about St. Nicholas, and some of them that have come down to us uh, in the figure of Nicholas the Wonderworker, who's the guy who's actually the basis of the Santa Claus myth, combined this Nicholas with another Nicholas named Nicholas of Sion. I think I'm pronouncing that correct. Sion. He was a figure who lived two centuries later, and he was a monk known for his holiness and asceticism and also for doing some miraculous things. So a lot of the legends of the medieval St. Nicholas that gave rise to the modern Kris Kringle are, in fact, a blending of these two stories. But we see from Nicholas that he was an exemplary bishop from early antiquity, or from late antiquity, firm in his orthodoxy, committed to Orthodox Christian truth, working to lovingly persuade people who had strayed away from that of the errors of their ways when he wasn't punching them in the face, and very generous, of a generosity that reached out to the poor, the marginalized, and particularly, in his case, poor women who were vulnerable to what would have essentially been sexual slavery. So St. Nicholas also, like many of those ancient bishops, suffered for his faith but then turned around and became an exemplar of what you were supposed to be as a good bishop when Christianity moved from a persecuted sect to the dominant religion in the Roman Empire. So that's Santa Claus. He was a real historical person. Don't let anybody tell you different. How did we get from that St. Nicholas to the elf who goes around and helps Santa? A lot of it was, in fact, marketing. Coca-Cola got a hold of Sinterklaas, uh, which is the duck, Dutch for St. Nicholas. The, uh, St. Nicholas was the gift giver in Holland. And you know, cartoonists started making pictures of him, Americanized it to Santa Claus. And this became part of a major advertising campaign. But if you listen to some of those very early Christmas carols, you'll, still, you'll see that even in that time period, Santa Claus is still Jesus's helper, as he has been for centuries. Here's a line from one of the most famous Christmas carols, Here Comes Santa Claus. This doesn't come until the third verse, so most people don't know it. Quote, Santa Claus knows we're all God's children. That makes everything right. So close your eyes and say your prayers, because Santa Claus is coming tonight. Unquote. This is very, very different from the sort of semi-romantic jolly but basically de-Christianized figure of later songs like Santa Baby or I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus. But what you see here is a calling back to the traditional understanding that Christ is at the center of Christmas and helping him out as they often did in medieval Christianity in particular were a number of other saints and figures who were maybe a little bit more fun workaday and accessible to people who weren't quite exactly sure what to do about the whole person of Jesus, maybe some folks who were marginal in their Christianity and needed an easier entrepot. So St. Nicholas, one of these Christian gift givers, became that type of figure, but he was always traditionally understood as Jesus's little helper. So where do we get this idea of uh, sort of moving away from 
Christianity and Christmas. That in and of itself is, I would say, something that comes out of Christianity. To understand what I mean by that, I need to recommend two new books, two more books. So I recommended uh, The Saint Who Would Be Santa Claus by Adam English earlier. And there are a couple of other books that I think are really important for understanding why Christmas is so central to the modern world. That's right, I said central. And why you'll never be able to take the Christ out of Christmas. The first book is called Dominion by Tom Holland. I may have recommended this on the podcast before, I'm not sure, but it is a history of Christianity's impact on the modern world. Holland wrote the book because initially he was attracted to the classics as a child, but then as he actually became a classicist, and Tom Holland is an excellent historian of Rome, he realized that the value system that you would see from classical writers, many of the sort of pre-Christian Greek and Roman pagan writers that he was attracted to as a kid, had very little in common with uh, the modern world in terms of moral values. They had no respect for women. They had no respect for slaves. They often had no respect for those who were ethnically different than them. And not by no respect, I mean sort of the, the modern sense of no respect of something, someone saying something disrespectful. Rather, the idea was that these people weren't really people in quite the same way. There was certainly no idea of democracy. Or if there was democracy, it was sort of uh, seen as mob rule rather than something that uh, had any sense of individual rights. Nor was there any concept of a separation between the spheres of politics and religion. We tend to think in the modern world, or at least moderns tend to think often, that Christianity is the thing that imposes religion onto politics. But what Holland realizes as he starts studying the classics is that the separation of religion and politics simply doesn't exist before Christianity. One of the most heinous crimes that you could be killed for in Rome was saying the sacred name of the city, which was essentially Rome in Latin spelled backwards. Doing that was a capital offense. There were many other offenses against the gods that were punishable by death. And in fact, one of the problems that Christians had one of the reasons that they were persecuted was because they would not sacrifice to the pagan gods of Rome, and refusal to sacrifice was seen as treason. So what, Holland asked, causes the rise of the modern world? What's the big agent of change? Christianity. So even the idea of secularism, Holland argues, is something that comes about because Christianity recognizes that there's this thing called the individual right of conscience and recognizes that people made in the image of God have to be free to believe or not believe as they so choose. And also, because Christianity was a minority religion and a religion that was often persecuted, it developed competing institutions. Instead of the Roman city and Roman civic officials, you had bishops, priests, and deacons who often played the same role as Roman officials did for the Christian church. Those institutions didn't just go away or get completely absorbed by the imperial hierarchy when Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. No, Christianity maintained a separate institutional hierarchy for religion. And this opened the idea of separate spheres of authority between the religious and the political, ideas that were codified in Christian thought down the years and gave rise to the idea of secularism that we understand today. There are many other examples some of which are accidental byproducts of Christianity that Christians themselves don't particularly like. Holland makes the argument, for example, that homosexuality as a category, that, that uh, someone being a, a uh, categorically member of the homosexual community, is something that really only emerges from Christianity. 
because it's not really differentiated in quite that way in any pagan counterexample. Part of the reason the Christians differentiated this, of course, was because they had much more strict taboos against that sort of thing than any of the other pagan societies around them. Another thing that Holland attributes to Christianity is the idea of women's rights. Before Christians, only some women were even expected to be kept pure, but mo mostly women were seen as objects. Christianity had a very strict moral code, to be sure, compared with the pagan Roman societies around them. But that strict moral code was universally applied. From the mightiest emperor to the lowest slave girl, everyone was expected to abide by the same standards of purity. Why? Because all of them were seen as made in the image of God. And gradually over time, this radical conception of the individual started to have an impact on the way Christians thought about other institutions. For example, it is in the 4th century, right around the time of Nicholas, that we read the first ever condemnation of slavery as an institution. And it came from, you guessed it, a bishop in late antiquity, someone who was both defending Christian orthodoxy and advocating for the poor, the vulnerable, and the marginalized. Gregory of Nyssa was one of the Cappadocian fathers, three thinkers in uh, part of Turkey that is was known as Cappadocia, it's now it's Turkey now, who were absolutely formative in the creation of the Eastern Orthodox Church and very important for Christian small o orthodoxy in general. And it was Gregory of Nyssa who uttered the first condemnation of, of slavery, not only from a Christian perspective, but at all. What price did you get for the God-formed man? Asked Gregory of Nyssa. How many obols or staters did you spend to purchase the image of God? A rhetorical question, but one that implies that such purchasing is in and of itself an unjust act. That was a new idea in history. In short, Holland argues, the modern world does not exist without Christianity. Without the person whose birth we celebrate on Christmas, you probably wouldn't have most of those aspects of modernity that we so often take for granted that we want to strip the Christianity out of them. One final book recommendation along these lines argues that, in fact, even the idea of the individual didn't really exist until Christianity. The author is Larry Seedentop, and his book is called Inventing the Individual. Seedentop argues that it is Christianity that first articulates the idea of conscience, that religion should be something that one chooses, rather than simply a family practice into which one is born and in which one dies, whether one likes it or not. As a result of this, Seedentop argues, you start to see the emergence of a new idea, the idea that the individual has intrinsic worth, dignity, rights, and responsibilities that don't just come from inherited position, social status, etc. Individuals, for Christians, matter. And that makes the individual a new category, a category that comes to full flowering in the modern period. So even as many Christians push back against certain aspects of individualism, commercialism, excessive secularism, and so on, we need to recognize the fact that these things have intrinsic Christian roots. And so if we are, in fact, pushing back against them as Christians, what we're really saying is not these things are bad in and of themselves, individualism is bad, separation between uh, political and religious authority is bad, and so on and so forth. But what we are saying is authenticity 
being authentically these things requires a recognition and cultivation of their Christian roots. And without those Christian roots, it's not clear that they can survive. So what about Christmas? Well, I'm always struck by the circumlocutions that people will try to use to get around the Christian aspect of Christmas. One of my favorites is Happy Holidays. Now, by favorites, I should clarify that I mean it annoys me no end. And if you want me to dislike a piece of Christmas music, all it needs to have is the word holidays in it. There's no place like home for the holidays, happy holidays, etc., etc. Not my favorite Christmas songs by a long shot. Well, holiday itself is a Christian term. It is an abbreviation of the old English term holy day. And of course, holy days were part of the Christian liturgical calendar in the medieval period. So if you think saying happy holidays is a non-sectarian way of saying Merry Christmas, you're wrong. And by the way, the idea of non-sectarian or even secular or non-religious, all of those ideas only exist because of Christianity. I guess season's greetings might potentially be one of those non-Christian ways of talking about Christmas, except for the fact that the season itself is established by the Christian calendar. Let's even talk about Thanksgiving, a holiday that itself has Christmas uh, Christian roots. Thanksgiving tends to happen the Thursday before the first Sunday in Advent. For those of you who aren't in the uh, Lutheran, Anglican, Roman Catholic, or Eastern Orthodox Church, you may not know what I mean when I'm saying Advent. But Advent is a season that essentially runs the month before Christmas. You may know this if you have one of those Advent calendars that has chocolate, or I gather some, some of the other ones have some other stuff in it. But Advent is a season that prepares us for uh, for Christmas. A reason originally it was more of a penitential season, a season where we would wait eagerly for the coming of Christ. Advent means waiting. But what's interesting is the Christmas season itself is largely shaped by Advent. Think about it. Right after Thanksgiving we have Black Friday and then it's officially Christmas. These arguments about when you can start playing Christmas music instinctively, most people gravitate toward, well, you can start playing Christmas music in Advent. And why is that the case? Why have we forgotten the traditional 12 days of Christmas, which don't actually start on December 12th and end on the 24th, but start on December 25th and run through January 6th? Yes, I'm saying you are not allowed to take your Christmas tree down until January 6th. January 6th is the end of Christmas. If somebody says Merry Christmas to you after New Year and it's before January 6th, they are right and that is appropriate. Don't take your Christmas stuff down on January 2nd. It's still Christmas for four days and you should enjoy that good old Christmas spirit as long as you possibly can. Also, you may have some leftover eggnog or other Christmas treats and you shouldn't feel bad about consuming them up to and including January 6th. So don't stress about that quite as much. January 6th is the Epiphany or the feast that celebrates the coming of the Magi. It's also sometimes known as Twelfth Night, which is a, play, a famous play by Shakespeare because it was the last of the Christmas revels at a medieval court. Hence why there's a lot of shenanigans that people get up to in Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. Anyway, Instinctively, people have this understanding that Christmas sort of starts at Advent. And it is interesting because as we've seen the, ex the expansion of Christmas, the commercialization of Christmas, it has still been within those Christian bounds. The season's greetings, the season whose greetings we extend, is still shaped by that Christian liturgical calendar that we knowingly or unknowingly have been following for a while. But wait, you might say, isn't Christmas itself really a pagan holiday? 
Didn't the Christians steal Christmas from Saturnalia or one of the other holidays that the Romans practiced at the time? Wasn't this just Constantine trying to make Christianity acceptable to a pagan public? First of all, that idea itself, which I've often heard from people who are, are of a more secular or pagan bent, has its origins with the Puritans. So if you're somebody who is saying that Christmas was stolen from the holidays, you got that idea from the Puritans. And as much as they may have written some interesting poetry and long, excruciatingly well-articulated exegesis on various biblical passages based on Calvinist principles, they really weren't that good at church history. The date of Christmas does not, in fact, come from Saturnalia, the winter solstice, or anything else pagan, although certainly some missionary bishops later on may have tried to associate Christmas with those festivals. It is true that Christmas wasn't as big of a deal early on as Easter. Easter was the ultimate holiday for Chris, uh, Christians, and that's why in the opening I said Christmas is maybe the most important day of the year except for Easter, because Easter is always the big one for early Christians. They didn't call it Easter, of course, they called it Pascha, or for the Passion of the Lord. But Easter was a date that had to be calculated, and figuring out how we are going to calculate Easter was a major controversy in the early church. I won't get into it too much because it's really obscure and has to do with fun aspects of calendars and how you count from the, the Sabbath and do you use lunar or solar calendars and all that kind of stuff. And there's only so much nerdery that I'm going to put you guys through on Christmas. However, at the same time, at some of these church councils, when they're starting to say, everybody needs to celebrate Easter on the same time because, oh my gosh, we're one church and we can't all be calculating this differently, they started to figure out, well, when are we going to celebrate Christmas? Here's the method they used. It had nothing to do with pagan holidays and everything to do with, mm, let's call it fourth century science. Well, Christmas is basically whenever Jesus was born, but nobody knew Jesus' birthday. So how do we figure it out? Well, the best way they could figure was figure out the day on which Jesus was conceived, the Annunciation, as that feast was known, and then move things forward nine months. So how did they figure out what day the Annunciation was going to be on? Well, here's where that fourth century science comes in. And it's a little dodgy, but they were trying. The idea was that Mary's conception would have happened on the most fertile day of the year the day of the year in which creation itself was responding to the Annunciation with an outgrowth of new growth, an outburst of new growth. That day, of course, was the spring equinox. And so since the spring equinox was normally celebrated on March 25th, nine months after that is December 25th. This is in a book about Christmas, the name of which I cannot remember, but I will try to find that for you guys, post it in the show notes and say and, and give due props to that on a future podcast. If you are looking for that book and you get there before I do, I, I heard this on a podcast once, Research on Religion by the great Tony Gill. Podcast is no longer going, uh, but he's number one. He's the guy who, who first introduced me to the English book through his podcast, the Adam English book. And then this, this other book by Christmas, and I cannot remember uh, the, the woman's name who wrote it, but she pointed that out. And then, of course, you do a little bit of research, and that is how Christmas was chosen. It had nothing to do with Saturnalia, had nothing to do with the solstice, had everything to do with figuring out when the Annunciation happened and using a little, you know, let's call it fourth century science in the process. So that's Christmas. 
It celebrates the birth of Jesus Christ, who I would argue, whether you believe in his divinity or not, and I certainly do, was the most consequential consequential figure in history. It is inconceivable to imagine the modern world without Jesus. There are a lot of other people that we could take out. But without Jesus Christ and the revolution that his church brought to our understanding of humanity, it's hard to imagine modern science, democracy, women's rights, ideas of the universal dignity of human beings, etc. And so I recommend that you read those books, Dominion and Inventing the Individual. And also, read The Saint Who Would Be Santa Claus, and remind yourself that even Santa, even this figure who's associated by many Christians with the commercialization of a holiday that is very important to many of us, even Santa is really a Christian figure. Nicholas of Myra was a figure who represented the archetype of what a Christian was supposed to be at a certain time in history, a time that was very important and formative for Christianity. And I think there's still some lessons that we can learn from St. Nicholas today about what it means to be brave and resolute as you are facing torture and the persecution of those under your charge, about what it means to be generous, about saving and preserving the vulnerable from economic hardships and the sexual exploitation of young women, problems that we still face today, about the need to hold firm to Christian orthodoxy while lovingly persuading those who are moving away from the faith to return to it. Santa Claus, after all, is more than just a jolly old elf. But if we really understand him historically as he was, he reminds us as Christians of who we are supposed to be. So let's be on Santa's nice list if we can, because as the song says, we are all, all God's children, a uniquely and radically Christian idea. And on Christmas, that makes everything right. Or at least it creates the modern world. So that's going to be a wrap for this Christmas special. Thank you all for listening. Merry Christmas. We will be back soon for the award show. I have, after much uh, delay, sent the categories to Kylan. And there are a couple of categories, and this should be going up on the Facebook. Uh, this should be up on the Facebook page by the time you're listening to this podcast. We have a category for events of 2020. There's a couple of categories there. There, there's a couple of the categories for people. And then there's some partisan awards, uh, awards for political figures within the Democratic and Republican parties. My request for that is please vote in that category based on the party that you feel more ideologically close to. And so Kylan and I are going to look over the way that you guys voted. Uh, she will announce the voting totals, how, how you guys voted for those awards. And then I will also tell you my picks in each of those different categories. And so that should be coming out fairly soon. So please uh, hop onto the Facebook page and vote in that poll. I don't give you choices. I'm letting you guys kind of pick on your own. So go ahead and throw your suggestions out there. While you're doing that, you can also check out the Robertson School of Government's Facebook page, and you can check out the Instagram also for RSG for content from myself and also from other RSG folks. So with that being said, have a Merry Christmas. And uh, if we don't get the next podcast out before that point, which I'm not sure that we will, also a Happy New Year. And I'm looking forward to sharing more of these podcasts with you all in 2021 as we move forward. So for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off. 